Before I get to the text and, and preach Genesis 19, I want to provide some background that will lead us to this event, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And in Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham and tells Abraham, in essence, to get up and to move and to go to this land that God is going to show him. And there is a significant uh, group of people that Abraham takes with him. And one of those people is Lot, Abraham's nephew. In Genesis chapter 12, as soon as Abraham begins his journey following God, the Bible tells us they come up into a famine. And Abraham was afraid that his flocks and his you know, people were ultimately going to starve and suffer. And so Abraham goes down to Egypt, though God did not tell Abraham to go there. When he's in Egypt... All of a sudden, he comes in contact with Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, and Pharaoh's people. And Abraham starts to think to himself, my wife is pretty hot. And they are going to want my wife. And they're going to kill me and take her. So Abraham tells his wife, would you please lie and don't tell them that we're married. Tell them you're my sister. The story goes on that eventually, before there is any type of thing that happens between Abraham's wife and Pharaoh, that God smites Pharaoh with a form of sickness. And Pharaoh realizes what has happened, and Pharaoh shows up to Abraham and says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Abraham said, well, I was afraid you'd kill me. Pharaoh was very upset and basically said, get out of here and go back to your land. And so Abraham heads back towards the place God told him to be in the first place. Now this is significant because they went down to Egypt. And then in Genesis 13, something happens. In Genesis 13, Abraham's flocks and his nephew Lot, Lot also owned flocks and herds, they had grown to a place of such great number that the land that they were in could not feed all of their flocks anymore. So Abraham told Lot, go out and you choose what land you want. You want the land on the left? I'll take the land on the right. You want the land on the right? I'll take the land on the left. You choose and go where you want to go. And there's this very important statement in Genesis 13 about Lot's decision. Here's what it says. It says, Lot looked, and he saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered, and I quote, that it was like the plains of Egypt. We learned something about Lot, that when Lot went down to Egypt, his heart began to love Egypt. In the Bible, Egypt is always this picture of the world system. We see that God rescues Israel, his people, out of Egypt, out of the control of Pharaoh. And when Lot saw Egypt, he saw this place that was lush, a place of wealth, a place of power, a place of influence, a, a place that people would flock to in time of famine. 
and his heart began to hunger and desire for that type of life that Egypt had to offer. By the time Genesis 19 rolls around, Lot's life is so wicked, he has taken on the customs of the wicked world around him, that it's almost unthinkable what we just read. In fact, in Genesis 18, the chapter right before our text, God shows up to Abraham and God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham basically says, well, no, Lot lives there. And Abraham has this interesting question to God. He says, God, would you destroy that entire place if there was 50 righteous people in it? You know what I believe that indicates? I think it indicates that Abraham could not fathom Lot would live anywhere where there weren't at least 50 other righteous people. God says, of course I wouldn't. I'm still going to destroy it. Abraham says, well, well, what if there was 40? What if there was 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And we see that Lot is living in a place, dwelling in a place where the land is so wicked, there's not even 10 righteous, God-fearing people in it. And God decides it is time to judge that group of people. You know, we see the deception of Egypt in the life of Lot. One way of saying what happened in Lot's heart, when Abraham took Lot down to Egypt, he was able to bring Lot out of Egypt. But he was never able to get Egypt out of Lot. It remained in his heart. It was something he hungered for. It was something he desired. And we see that there is this deceptive, alluring nature of the sinful world. We see this morning as well in our introduction that the, the, the potential, the degree of which evil can, can grow to. I mean, when we look at the sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is sickening. It's sickening that they would press and do all that they could to, to get these strangers, these visitors, out of the house so that they could rape them. You know, we learned that the world has been wicked since sin entered it. People are not any more wicked today than they were here. I've mentioned it a handful of times recently here at the well, one of the major differences between today and this period of time is there wasn't 7 billion people on the earth then. There's 7 billion people on the planet now and it's continuing to grow. And so the earth is more inhabited by sinners, by nature. And so, you know, it's a little easier to look to the left or the right and see wickedness anywhere you look. But brothers and sisters, this is Genesis 19. People have always been wicked in their sins. And we see that sin, when it goes unchecked, it, 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 it can become so incredibly evil. And what's Lot thinking? I mean, what a twisted man he's become when he's like, it's my responsibility to protect these strangers, so I'm going to give up my daughters to be raped. This seems unfathomable, but I'm telling you something. Sin will cause you to do things that seem unfathomable. It'll cause you to live away, think away, be away that you never believed was even possible. 
And that's exactly what happens with Lot and his family. The people are so wicked that as they are trying to press through and break the doors, these angels really have no option but to strike them with a temporary blindness. And it makes this unbelievable statement that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I mean, like, even after being struck with blindness, they don't quit. And this is the truth about the mob mentality. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. There is power in numbers. Peer pressure is real. And you get a mob of people who have made up their mind they're going to do something evil, something wicked, no matter what, and you're part of that group, you will find it is almost impossible to get out. That's how wicked they were. They didn't care they'd all been struck with blindness. You would think, right? You would think everybody would be like, whoa, we better stop. But all it did was really embolden them to the place they wore themselves out. We see the potential of evil. Look at Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15.4 teaches us that these things were written for our instruction. They have application to us. You know, there's a war that's being waged today between right and wrong. And this war, this battle, it is fought in four primary places. Four. First of all, the individual. James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen to me, sir, ma'am. There is a war inside of you. Especially if you're saved. There is a battle between your flesh and your spirit. And the Bible says you have to resist the devil. I can't do it for you. Your wife can't do it for you. Your husband can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your kids can't do it for you. Your pastors can't do it for you. You must resist the devil yourself. There is a battle for you. And if you're going to be successful in any battle, you've got to have some strength and some courage. You can't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. You have to know there is a war raging in you for what is right and what is wrong. And any true Christian who's truly been born again, who has the Holy Ghost living inside of them, knows this truth. There's a part of you at times, you don't want to do it God's way. You want to do it your way. You want to follow what makes sense to you. And then there's the Holy Spirit, that voice of God inside of you that says, we don't live that way anymore. We don't talk that way anymore. We follow God. There's a very real battle. After that, there is a battle for the home. Look what Deuteronomy 4.9 says, Only take care and keep your, your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Does all that fit up there on one screen? No. 
the first part of that, before we get about making them known to your children and your grandchildren, is you take care of yourself. Take care of your soul diligently. Lest you forget the things that you've seen, the things that you've learned. Lest they depart from your heart. Here's the lesson. Nobody can influence your family like you. I know I'm bearing my soul out this morning, but I promise you it's out of love. And I have some hard things to say. It will do no good to bring your children to church for two hours a week if you live like hell all week in your home. Honestly. I'm not saying don't bring your kids to church. I'm just telling you, we are not more powerful to influence your kids in two hours a week than you are all week long as their mom and dad. And I've seen parents who don't live godly. They have no true commitment to God. They don't follow the things of God. And then their children, when they grow up and start to make decisions of their own, they live like heathens and the parents are like, oh no, we've got to get to church. It does not work that way. We don't have influence over your children if you aren't leading them in the ways of God. It just doesn't work. I wish I could tell you different. I wish I could tell you it's actually going to help for you to bring your kids for two hours a week. But it's not. You cuss like a sailor. You drink like a fish. You live like a sinner all week long in front of your children and then think somehow you can bring them here and let them hear a Bible story for an hour a week and their lives are going to be changed. You are deceived, my friend. There is a battle for the home. That's where the real influence is. At best, all that we can do here is enhance or, or uh, I don't even know the right word for it, but we can come alongside you if you are truly living the life at home and we can show your children you're not the only family that believes these things. You're not the only family that lives that way. And we can help kind of back up what you're doing at home. But if you think that you can live a godless life and, and, and raise your children in a godless atmosphere and then drop them off at church for an hour a week and somehow them grow up to be God-fearing men and women of God, you are deceived. Let me tell you why this is important, because there is a battle for your home, and I cannot fight that battle for you, sir. Can't do it. We're not sending pastors and deacons with you home after church to kick down your doors and get the garbage out of your home and make sure that you're reading your Bible and make sure that you're living godly in front of your kids. It's not our job. It's not our authority to do so. Biblically, we don't have the right to do that. It is your home, your life, and you've got to understand there is an absolute war for you and for your children and for your home, and nobody can fight that battle but you. Number three, there is a war being waged on the church. Look at Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. You know, do Christians well, I'm going to read verse 18 in a second. It would do Christians well to learn there are some people we're just supposed to avoid. Quit getting in arguments with people on Facebook. Quit, quit getting in arguments with people that are just trying to be problem creators. If you want to be obedient to the Word of God, it says, it doesn't say argue with them, it doesn't say win the argument, it actually says, and I quote, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Number four, there's a fight for almost every nation. Look what Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, we really see all of these principles in Genesis 19. And this morning, I want us to quickly look at three lessons from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Number one, note this morning that sin ruins. You live in Sodom long enough, Sodom will eventually live in you. You hunger and thirst for the blessings of Egypt, and you will find that sooner or later, Egypt has corrupted you. There are serious consequences to pay when we allow the sinful pleasures of the world to be what we lust after. A few things I see the consequences of sin and it ruining God's design in Genesis 19. I see that when Sodom lives in the hearts of men, respect for parents declines. You know, in verse 14, uh, Lot shows up, and man, this guy knows. These are real angels. I watched him smite these men with blindness. Like, I knew there was something different about them in my spirit when they showed up, and I'm just going to take care of them, but like, now I get it. They're here to warn us. And so Lot, he, he follows their advice, man. He goes to find his sons-in-laws, people that he cares about, and he gets a hold of his sons-in-laws. He says, listen, boys, we got to get out of here. You know what it says? It says they seemed as if he was joking. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Lot was trying to look like he was joking? I would imagine there was some urgency in his voice. And yet, his sons-in-law thought he was joking. I'm going to come back to their disrespect of their father-in-law. But I want to at least take a moment to, to acknowledge they had some reason to believe he was. Lot had lost his testimony. It's almost as if you can hear him, oh, you're joking around, you know. Right, Dad. You had another long night drinking, didn't you? Go get some rest, Pops. We never heard you talk like this before. It's what happens when somebody chooses to live in sin, play with sin, have a false, hypocritical profession, and then all of a sudden one day you want to get serious and try to talk to somebody about Jesus. You'll seem as if you're joking. Lot had ruined his testimony. Lot had chosen to settle down in one of the most wicked cities of the land and raise his family there. The night before, Lot's saying of these men, you know, he's saying, hey, I've got some daughters, go rape them. Oh, but next morning, the Lord's coming back. We need to obey the Lord. No wonder they thought he was joking. Can I say again, Nobody has more influence over your children than you, mom or dad. Nobody. And when you've been influencing them one way for years and years and years and years, no, you can't just all of a sudden one day change and say, here's what we're going to do and expect that everything's going to be different. 
There are consequences to pay for sin. And brothers and sisters, sin, it ruins. And we see that these sons, I mean, I'm not making an excuse for them. I'm telling you, they're, they're, Lot is guilty for his side of it. But we still see sons-in-law that are mocking their father. You know, the Bible teaches us that in the end, one of the things Paul told Timothy is that one of the signs of the end would be very similar to this. You would see children that were disobedient to their parents. Man, we are seeing it. We live in this shameful day of of a disrespectful generation. Look at God's view of this in Leviticus 20 and verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who has cursed his father or his mother, his blood is upon him. Now listen, this particular law given to Israel specifically to govern the nation of Israel during a period of time doesn't apply to us anymore as a people of God. Things changed when Jesus fulfilled the law. But this does teach you something about the heart of God. You want to know how God sees disobedience uh, to parents? He hates it. It's not cute to God. He hates it. So much so that the penalty used to be death. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. And I'm telling you, we are living in one of the most disrespectful generations there has ever been. Disrespectful to parents, disrespectful to authorities. And you know what's wild? We've created names for it. We've created diagnoses for it so that now nobody's even responsible for their behavior anymore. And I do believe there are certain diagnoses that are real, but I'm telling you, we overdiagnose in this country like no time in history. And you want to know one of the ways I know? I've had the blessed uh, opportunity to travel the world and be in many different countries. How is it that I can fly six and a half hours south of here to the country of Haiti, a third world country? And when I preach, they have all the children between the ages of like two and four to six years old. They all take up the front four rows. They don't sit with their parents. The adults sit behind. The children sit up there. And they can't understand anything I'm saying. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. As I stand before you before God, I'm talking 56-year-old and unders sitting together without parents, and they don't make a peep while I'm preaching. Why? Because it's not put up with. And it don't matter if it's that church or if it's a church two miles down the road or if it's in Honduras, is almost identical. But all of a sudden, you come back here, 75% of our kids have diagnoses that allow them to be disobedient to their parents and do whatever they want to do. It marks the end of times, brothers and sisters. It tells us we are living in that final generation that God warned about where children would be disobedient to parents. And it's not going to stop. It's going to continue to abound. When Sodom lives in the hearts of men, there is a reluctance to flee from evil. It tells us that the angels said, hurry, get up, get out of here. And I quote in verse 16, but he lingered. 
You'll find that when your heart is like Lot's and you hunger for the things of Egypt, you kind of linger to leave it behind. You're just not real sure you want to give up that sin. Not real sure you want to give up the pleasures of sin. And they are pleasurable for a little while. The Bible teaches us that sin can be fun for a season. That's what Satan does. He offers a little bit of satisfaction, a little bit of reward, and then once he's got you, he begins to ruin your life. I cannot say it enough. Sin ruins. It causes us to be reluctant to flee from evil. Today, Christians are told to flee the evils of this world. I'm going to show you four examples of what we're supposed to flee. Number one, fornication. 1 Corinthians 6 and 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Just look at the first sentence. It's straight out. Flee sexual immorality. Flee from it. Flee from it. You have to see that sin ruins. It's not to be toyed with. It's like bait. Where Satan gives you what you want, lets you taste what you want to taste, and then he's got the hook in your mouth and he controls you from there. You have to flee from sexual immorality. Now, I'm incredibly cautious to never tell you and paint with some broad brush what you can watch, what you can listen to. Because the Bible doesn't specifically say. I like The Passion of Christ. It's a rated R movie. So I couldn't get up here and possibly say, don't ever watch anything, rated R. But here's the point. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't be feasting and lusting upon things that entice your sinful nature. 1 Corinthians 10.14 Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Hey, this is a statement to the New Testament church. Flee from idolatry. You know what idolatry is is at its core? It is to love anything more than God. To believe that something else could provide satisfaction for you more than God. And anything that you love with all your heart other than God, it's an idol in your life. We are told to flee from that. 1 Timothy 6, 10-11 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice it does not say that money is the root of all evil. Money is a tool and nothing more than a tool. But it says the love of money. This is really where Lot fell. Money looked different back then than it does now. They didn't have printed dollar bills with presidents on it. Sometimes it was simply through bartering, but ultimately it was the hunger for wealth. That desire to have whatever I want, to have whatever, whenever I need to be, to, to have just everything, to love that and to hunger for that. Paul says this is where ultimately the root of all evil springs from. We have to flee from that, guard our hearts from that. 
2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We are to flee from youthful lusts. And then in James chapter 4 and verse 4, we just kind of have this general statement that encompasses it all. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or that is to be at war with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is New Testament, James chapter 4, brothers and sisters. What's the Word of God teaching us that we must keep the world out of our heart? When Sodom lives in the hearts of men, fear reigns in place of faith. In verses 17 through 22, the angels tell Abraham, excuse me, they tell Lot where to go to find safety. And Lot thinks, well, I can't go there. I'm afraid I'll die out there. Like, really? They just led you out of safety. You were going to die in there. And you'll find that fear reigns in the hearts of men. He was so influenced by the sinful society of Sodom that he was conditioned to be afraid. I want you to see something about how the enemy works. And what I'm about to say is going to make a few folks mad. But you need to hear it. The way the enemy works is through fear. That's like Satan's kingdom works through fear. It's the primary motivating factor. God's kingdom works through love. That's the primary motivating factor. Now, the Bible teaches us that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, and there must be this healthy fear of the Lord, but you will find when you study the kingdom of God, the motivating factor, the greatest power of God's kingdom is one of love, where we, God loves us, and because of that, we love Him, and we serve Him out of a true uh, heart and relationship of love. Satan's kingdom, on the other hand, works by fear. And I'm telling you, this, this fear-based conditioning is something that is permeating the world right now. It's controlled by fear. What did the people say? The men said to uh, Lot, when Lot said, don't do this wicked thing, they turn on him immediately. Oh, so you're the judge. That's one thing wicked people will always say when you call out their wickedness. Get ready for it. And then they say this, we're going to do worse to you than what we were going to do to them. It's fear-driven. Get in line or you will suffer. Now here's what I'm going to tell you. It's going to make some of you mad. This devilish way of ruling has permeated in this country both the left and the right. And it's demonic at its core. Get in line or suffer the consequences of not being with us. You hear that? And here's what you need to know. That's demonic. It's not God. There's, there's, that is absolutely not the way the church operates. It's a demonic spirit. And I'm watching it permeate everywhere. And I've watched a bunch of Christians jump on board with that type of talk. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. God help us to wake up out of the delusion that somehow we have been trapped in 
pick a side, who are you going to fight with, and if you don't pick the right side, you're going to suffer. I'm just telling you it's demonic. I have nothing to do with those types of people. When Sodom lives in the hearts of men, fear reigns in the place of faith. Look what 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You want to know what the spirit of God looks like? That's it. It's not a spirit of fear. Spirit of power and love and self-control. Next, I notice that when Sodom lives in the hearts of men, immorality becomes a way of life. You know the story of Lot. It's a very embarrassing story. By the way, it's also one of the many things you can point to that really adds credibility to the Word of God. This book doesn't hide from us the absolute awful moral failures of people and the consequences that followed. But immorality becomes a way of life. Lot's daughters, who were engaged to be married, their fiancés stayed back and burned with everyone else. The Bible teaches this that this is, this is awful. I'm just telling you, it's the truth. They get away from there, and Lot's daughters think, now there ain't anybody we're going to be have kids with. Let's get Dad so drunk that we can have incest with him. That way we can at least have children. First of all, how did they know how easy it'd be to get their dad so plastered drunk they could do this thing and him not know about it. Must have been a way of life at home. And immorality becomes this wicked just way of life. How does this happen to a people who left with Abraham to follow the voice of God, to follow the leading of God into a land that God was going to show them? I'll tell you how it happens. They look at Egypt and think, man, that looks awesome. I want that. I want the pleasures of the world. I want the pleasures of sin. They had regular contact. They lived with amongst the citizens of Sodom, and the influence rubbed off on them. That's the bottom line. Now, before I move... To my next point, I want to say this. God has called us to go into the world and reach the lost. But there is a big difference between making the decision that you and I are going to go to Sodom for a day and we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to try to win the lost. There's a big difference between that and us deciding we're going to live there, dwell there, find our pleasure there, and just settle down in there. Big difference. And that's exactly what Lot and his family decided to do. Look what 1 Corinthians 15.33 says. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived. Don't let anybody deceive you. Bad company will ruin you. I could not even guess I mean, I've been doing this 20 years, so it's not that strange of a statement. But I can even guess the number of people who have told me they're Christians. 
and they still hang and spend time with their old partying people and the old sinful people in their world. And when you talk to them about coming out from among them like God has told us to do and living a life consecrated to God, the response is they're trying to win them to the Lord. All I can tell you is in 20 years, I've never seen it be successful one time ever. You want to know why? Because God's word is true and they're liars. Be not deceived. Bad company. It will ruin good morals. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. It's the bottom line. Now we need to be winning the lost. We need to be going to places where sinners are and winning them to the Lord. Jesus did that. Yes, Jesus spent time with sinners to win them, to to evangelize them. But He didn't live amongst them. He didn't sit down and partake in their sins and just hope that somehow being in their presence would change them. Be not deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Number two this morning. We see in Genesis 19 that God's patience has limits. And God's judgment will come. God is patient. God's first instinct is patience and grace. Otherwise, we'd all be obliterated at first sin. And we're not. Some of us, I think it's the truth, God's shown a greater degree of patience with. But do not mistake the Word of God. His patience does have limits. And His judgment will come. This morning dawned. It was a normal morning. Sons and daughters are waking up. Dads are headed off to work. There's no prophet there to warn them. No message from an angel. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were totally and completely unready for that day. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 17 that in the end it would be very much like in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It is imminent. It is guaranteed. Sodom's fate is a picture of the wrath to come. When we talk about the destruction of Sodom, we have to remember that these were people. People that God loved, by the way. The Bible says that God does not take delight in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't delight in it. While wickedness must be dealt with, God is not up there clapping his hands at the destruction of humans who were created in his image. These were people. And I'm telling you, when the Lord returns, when God does on a worldwide scale what he did here to two cities, can you see their faces? If it were to happen today, could you see any of the faces of your family in the destruction? 
telling you, brothers and sisters, it's time for us to get focused on being a beacon of light in a dark world and in doing everything we can to rescue the lost and to show up like these angels did and warn people to flee from the wrath to come. They're people. They need saved. They're people that God loves and that we should love. While I am grateful that God will eventually Uh, one day completely and fully eradicate evil as we know it, and there will be a final judgment. I'm thankful for that. When I see individuals, when I see humans that are going to endure that judgment, that part breaks my heart. And there should be a sense of urgency as if there was with these angels. They said, up, that that, that up. It, It could also be translated hurry, like, let's go. There was a sense of urgency. And I believe the devil wants to lull us to sleep so that there's not a sense of urgency in what we're doing with our faith. He wants to make what we're doing so small like it's about us and trying to become better. No, it's so much bigger. It's about rescuing the lost. It's about building God's kingdom. His patience has limits. This morning, if you're toying with the patience of God, I plead with you, stop today. Finally, this morning in verse chapter 19, as I see in the destruction of Sodom, I see that God provides a way of escape. In verses 15 through 16, the angels come and they they tell him to get up, to take your wife, your daughters who are here, lest they be swept away in the punishment of the city. First of all, notice this, very similar to how God reaches us today. Notice they came to where Lot was. Lot wasn't looking, Lot wasn't expecting, but God showed up on the scene through his angels. God showed up and came to where he was. God will do that for you. God will come to where you are to stir your heart, to get up out of the mess you're in and follow him. Notice they had instructions. Flee, get out of here. The path is the same today. Flee from sin. That's it. It's not that hard. The main reason most people never truly get saved, the main reason most people, if they are saved, never really get far in their faith is plain and simple. They won't flee from what they're supposed to flee from. They want to stay in it. You have to repent. In Acts chapter 17, the Word of God tells us that God commands everyone, everywhere to repent. That's the problem with most folks. They just simply won't repent. It's like they want to pray prayer number 4,372. God fix this. God fix this. God fix this. The answer is you stop it. That's the answer. It really is that simple. It's like you're just waiting for God to wave a magic wand and it's like, God, if you'll take away my flesh nature, I'll quit doing those things. It doesn't work that way. Stop it. Stop your sinning. It is a choice. Nobody's handcuffing you and forcing you to maintain that addiction. 
You're the one that turned the computer on. You're the one that's doing the sin. You're the one that chooses to hang out in that same group of people that always get you to come out of what you know is right and act in a way you shouldn't. It's your choice. Stop it. You want to know the answer? You want to know how to get out of where you are? You want to know the path? It's that simple. Flee from it. Get out of it. Turn from it. Repent. That's the answer. God provides a way of salvation. He provides a way of escape. And notice as they lingered, it says that they seized him, grabbed a hold of him and led them out. The Lord being merciful to him. You know, I've watched God do it. I believe right now as I preach, God's trying to do it to some of you. I've watched God actually seize people. Not physically, like the angels did here, but I'm talking, I've watched God reach in and grab somebody's heart, and they know God's got a hold of them, and He's dealing with them, and He's telling them, it's time to change! It's time to change! It's time to change! I've watched it happen. But in the end, the choice is ultimately yours. It's one of the reasons I hesitate from dragging people to altars and having them say prayers. Because ultimately they did the same thing for Lot's wife. But as she got out and she got away, the Bible tells us that she looked back at what she really wanted. At where her heart still was. It says she became a pillar of salt. You know, that's all the Bible says. When I, the very first time I heard that, I'm like, that's weird. Did she just like turn into a table salt? I'm just I mean, I've actually studied the passage because it was confusing to me. It doesn't tell us that it happened in a second. It doesn't tell us that, no, she disintegrated and became a little salt. It just tells us she died and became. It tells us the process, how long it took. It just, that's what happened to her. Here's what the Bible clearly communicates to us. Her heart was still there. She looked back at it, and it cost her her life. What is there to look back at? Think about what was there. Think about the sexual lewdness that was there. Think about what almost happened to her daughters the night before. But I'm telling you something. When you allow the lust of this world to live in your heart, it will have a grip on you that is so demonic and so powerful for some people it's almost impossible to escape. Sin ruins. The final instruction that they had was to get to the hills, get to the mountains. There's never any telling what, there's just no telling, none whatsoever, what would happen had Lot obeyed without question and not asked to go to Zor. We see that even Lot's heart, and Lot wasn't done yet. But I can't help but wonder, had, God, had Lot actually gone where God had told him to go to start with, I wonder if what wicked thing happened with his daughters would have happened. No way to know. I'm just telling you I think on these things. But here's what I know. Lot never did go to the mountain God told him to go to. 
This morning, brothers and sisters, there's only one mountain that we can flee to to be saved. And that is the mountain called Calvary. There was a hill just outside of Jerusalem. And I believe with all of my heart, there's a symbolic reference here to the hill that saves. There is a hill just outside of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. It's called Mount Calvary. It means the place of the skull. Golgotha is the Aramaic way of saying Calvary. It's where Jesus was crucified. You want to get to that mountain? First, you've got to be willing to repent. You've got to be willing to flee from what's evil. You can't go to the mountain and find salvation without leaving the place of sin. But you will find it is there at that mountain that you find the wrath of God has been dealt with. It's the only mountain that can save in your life. Here's the truth. You will face the wrath of God. Every one of us will. You're going to face it one way or the other. You can either face it and pay for it yourself. Like the people of Sodom. Forever and ever in what the Bible calls the second death. You can face the wrath of God all by yourself and spend forever in hell. That is an option. Or you can see the wrath of God on your life dealt with and paid for in full when you get to that mountain and you kneel before Jesus Christ and you see that there and there alone is where the wrath of God was poured out for my sins and the sins of mankind. It is the mountain, brothers and sisters, where we can flee to for refuge from the wrath of God. But you've got to repent and get to that mountain. This morning I ask if you're here and you are not saved. I'm not asking if you believe in God. You know who believes in God? Satan. That's who. The devils believe in God. James tells us the demons believe, they tremble. James is almost joking about it or being uh, sarcastic about it. He says, oh, you believe in God. Good, good. So do the demons. They tremble. It's not just enough to believe that this is God, the God of the Bible. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The question is, if you repented of your wickedness, Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord? and not do what I say. I'm not your Lord. You are. You don't follow my laws. You follow your own. Why would you call me Lord? Jesus said in the end, many will come, calling him Lord. And he said, I'll tell them all, depart from me, you who live in your sin. It's not enough to just believe. You got to repent of your wickedness. Stop it. Turn from it. See it for what it is. Evil sin that ruins. And follow Jesus. There is no other path. There is no other way.